Good, right, we're going to be uh, looking into God's Word together. Uh, We're in uh, the book of Ezra, which is an Old Testament, uh, from the Old Testament of the Bible, the the first half, um, and you'll find it on page uh, 473, 473, if you want to be following in the church uh, Bibles. Yeah, well, let's uh, keep praying, and uh, it's an exciting week this time uh, next week, or or a week tomorrow, builders will be in here, and uh, we've got lots to learn, uh, lots to kind of be thankful for as Lou has prayed. Uh, We had a particular, uh, we met met with um, some of the leaders of St. Denny's uh, just in the week, and just had a really great time sharing some of their their vision for ministry in their area, and, and you know, discovered that we have a great deal in common in terms of our, our heart. The kind of things we're learning through the missional cluster in Beavers uh, Valley connects in lots of ways with um, what they're learning in St. Denny's. So we're quite excited uh, at what might happen in the future, but we just look to God and pray that uh, he'll lead us forward and so we can pray for, for those guys down there as we get to know them. I think some of them will be coming to our afternoon services. Uh, the vicar, Kelvin, said, I'm encouraging people, you know, if it's, t- you know, if you like a lie-in, well, go to the afternoon and join Portswood service while, while they're there. So, uh, I thought that was very generous of them. Uh, and, uh, it might be that you could join, uh, you know, go, to, go on a morning. I said, well, maybe some of our guys might come down in the morning to encourage you, uh, as well. So if you're looking for a morning service, if like me, you're a bit of a, you know, uh, something feels wrong if you don't have at least one service in the morning on a Sunday, then you can you can do that, I guess. Anyway, Ezra chapter 1. It's a new series, and uh, as you can see on the screen, uh, we're calling it Home from Exile, Finding the Heart to Rebuild. It's a, 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 an amazing and intriguing story of God's people starting all over again. We'll see why and in a minute. Going back to the land, the land of uh, Israel, the land of Palestine, where they'd been kind of ejected from, going back there and building their temple, as God told them to do. How on earth might that relate to us here, you might be wondering. Well, we're sure that it's the right passage, uh, uh, parts of the Bible to study for all kinds of reasons. Um, and we'll come back to the connections maybe in about 20 minutes' time. But can I just say <clears throat> that it has nothing to do whatsoever with a building project, a physical building project. You see, what, uh, as we shall learn in this story, it's not about you know, glass and plasterboard and concrete and the kind of stuff that goes to make up buildings. Either then, in the, uh, old, uh, in the uh, about 500 BC, or today... It's about something else. So we're going to be learning from God's word in the book of Ezra. It comes at a particular point in the history of God's people, the Jews, the Israelites, uh, the the bunch that came, descended from Abraham, that came out of Egypt and then found their uh, way to the promised land as God led them. The book is called Ezra, and uh, Ezra is a man, a priest actually, who indeed, uh, it would seem, is the the writer of this this account. He wrote it up. He actually comes into the story later uh, than the part we're going to look at. So, although it's by Ezra, it's called Ezra, uh, we won't be meeting Ezra, not at least this time. We may do that sometime in the future. Uh, He is in the story, but he's written up the first part, the part that he wasn't involved in, and uh, after Ezra, uh, then... uh, 
Nehemiah, another of the Old Testament uh, writers, comes on the scene. Uh, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem as well. And now some of us are more familiar with Nehemiah's story. Uh, checking it out when I first came here five years ago, almost to the day, uh, we were talking about what should we study, and somebody said, oh, don't do Nehemiah. We've had Nehemiah twice in the last two years. And uh, so some of you who are, have been in the church that long will be familiar, if you can still remember the story of Nehemiah. Well, I, I need to mention that uh, Nehemiah's story comes after the bit that we're looking at now. You see, because Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem uh, later on. The bit we're looking at now is the bit when the people first come back and build not the walls of Jerusalem, but the temple in Jerusalem. So our story is way before Nehemiah's story. If you've got Nehemiah in your head, you've got to think back 80 or 90 years possibly before he was on the scene or certainly completed the walls of Jerusalem. The story we're going to be in for the next few weeks actually covers a 22-year period. So, you know, as often in biblical history, it's kind of focused, squashed together to pick out, you know, the, the, the edited highlights. You haven't got everything that happened, but you've got the story of what God's people learnt and how he le- led them and revealed himself to them in that time. So 22 years uh, period when people first go back to Palestine and rebuild the temple. They first go there in the bit we're looking at. And then along comes Ezra, uh, who's a priest who helps them get into God's word again clearly. And then after that comes Nehemiah, who builds the walls. Now, I'll just share that, because some of you know the story of Nehemiah, maybe thinking, where's Nehemiah fit into this? If you don't know anything about Nehemiah, that's okay. Forget all of that. We'll get straight into it now. Let's read Ezra uh, 1, verses 1 to 4. We've actually had it. It was great to hear the children uh, and young people doing that earlier. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let's see how God moves. That's the first kind of bit of the story. God is the mover. The book starts off in the real world. This isn't once upon a time in a galaxy far away. This is uh, in 538 BC. Cyrus comes to the throne of Persia. He's the king of Persia. He, his is the current world power. He's the top dog, the top one in world kind of uh, politics at that time. Now, the Israelites had once had their own great empire. They too had been a world power under David and then Solomon. In fact, Solomon in his time had been the greatest world power that there had been up until then. And if you know the story, you will know that all of the the lands promised to Abraham were given and were were owned by Israel uh, during Solomon's reign. Great top dog. But then came decline. 
over the centuries, over two centuries, and the Assyrian come, the Assyrians come on the scene from the north, and then the Babylonian Empire comes into being, and things get kind of shaken up. There's this shifting of world powers and, and top place, Premier League uh, kind of position, which Israel once had, is smashed to pieces. Jerusalem is destroyed. Their temple is in ruins. They're smashed up. All that was left of David's empire by then and Solomon's empire was Judah, a small part around Jerusalem. And that is taken and the people are taken mainly captive and they all end up, or most of them end up, in exile in Babylon. And two generations later now, Babylon in itself is grabbed by Persia, and Cyrus is the top man of Persia. A new power comes onto the world stage. This is what's happening. That's history at one level. But there's more, because the text tells us, verse 1, that the Lord is at work here. The Lord is on the move. Jeremiah had brought God's word to Judah. And God's word to Judah, before it all happened, and as it was happening, as this great power came, Babylon, and, uh, and, uh, and subjugated them, and then smashed them up and took them captive, Jeremiah is revealing what God's saying about it in his prophecy, in his book, that we know of as Jeremiah. Jeremiah has said these events have a meaning. His word from God had explained it all. He explained two things to them. First of all, he explained why it was happening. If you want to just keep one page, uh, one finger in Ezra, if you want to read this uh, or just listen, if you prefer. I don't think we've got center of worship. Oh, no, the other one, easy worship going, so it might be harder to get it on the screen today. But Jeremiah 29 on, on page 788, sorry, not 29, Jeremiah 25, rather, on page 784. Listen to what Jeremiah says to God's people. He's, uh, he's, he's talking about his career as a prophet. This is before it all happens. This is as Babylon is kind of beginning to kind of come on the scene and, and encircle Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, this is Jeremiah speaking, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened and paid any attention. They said, this is what the prophets have said, Jeremiah sums it up, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices and you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. And you have provoked me with, the ha- with what your hands have made. They've been worshipping idols Therefore the Lord Almighty says, verse 8, Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness and so on and so forth. 
That's why, Jeremiah says, this is why it's happened. You haven't listened to me, says the Lord. I've told you and told you and told you again and again and again, not to follow the idols around you, but to be loyal to me, the Lord, who loved you, who saved you, who rescued you. But you didn't take any notice. And so you're going to go into captivity. It's pretty clear, isn't it? He didn't mince his words, Jeremiah. But Jeremiah also, in that word says how it's going to end. Look at uh, verse 12. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation. And so on. If you turn a couple of pages on to Jeremiah 29, this is an amazing uh, message. Jeremiah has a letter, because when Jeremiah was speaking, you see, the people weren't just carted off to Babylon on one mass. There were waves of kind of repatriation, if you like. And so some of them actually, like Daniel, go a lot earlier on in the process. And so by the time Jeremiah is saying this in Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem is still saying, it's going to be okay, no, God will never do that to us, it's all right, you know, we haven't done anything too bad. Jeremiah is, is by God is giving Jeremiah words to, to, to give to the, the community in, in, in Babylon that have settled, And he tells them in this chapter 29, he sends them a letter with the word of the Lord, telling them to settle down and to pray for the peace of Babylon and and, and have families and and get involved in the world there and and just prosper the place. Um, Because, uh, But then in verse 10, this is what the Lord says, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. So Jeremiah then explains why it happened And what was going to come next? God would bring them back. The exile would come to an end. That Isaiah had prophesied that Cyrus, he's actually named in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, that he would be used by God to bring uh, the people back to fulfill his purposes. Now this, as I say, is real history. I should have put a picture up. If you go to the British Museum and ask um, or look for the Cyrus Cylinder which isn't part of the um, central heating system, but it's a piece of uh, kind of ancient pottery, uh, you will find there uh, a, a, a kind of pot cylindrical thing, which if you read the local language at the time, is all about Cyrus and what he did and why. And it explains his policy as the emperor of Persia. And it explains that Cyrus had allowed all his subject peoples to do this. It wasn't just the Jews, it was all of the ones that had been carted off from all of those countries. He said the same thing to all of them. You can go back, I want you to go back to your place, I want you to honour your God. It was actually Cyrus's way of bringing unity into his empire. To get the people to go back home, some of them, to build their temples, to pray to their gods for Cyrus. <laughs> It was his way of kind of covering all the bases, I suppose. 
A bit like some uh, Hinduism is a bit like that. You're another god for the pantheon. That's okay. There's room for plenty in the kind of Hindu worldview. It may have been a bit like that. So in Ezra, the, here, the, the message that we've got here from Cyrus sounds a bit like a standard kind of message. There's another one that's been dug up in, in Egypt, which had a, a similar kind of form to, to it. But whatever his real motive, the Lord is at work. What does Romans 8 say? At, God is at work in all things for good. God is at work. People sometimes call that providence. And that doesn't mean that God is like some kind of puppet master, you know, pulling everybody's strings. So, you know, you know I, was, sorry, I watched the film Ratatouille yesterday. The little mouse sits on his head and he pulls his head. That, that's, that's not like that. No, this is Cyrus's genuine and very smart policy on Cyrus's part. It's what he did in all the nations. It's what he worked out. He thought it would be a good thing to do. It wasn't that he was kind of being manipulated to do it, but in some, you know, God's master plan. But, but as he used his free will and as he exercised his policy, so God was at work in that, working stuff out according to his purposes. So there's a bit of background and history. Imagine you're an Israelite. We had a bit of that. It was great. No, no conferring, uh, but what the girls did at the front was really excellent. Because they were saying it, weren't they? Imagine you've been there for 70 years or more. As I say, Jerusalem fell in 587 BC, but the people were repatriated in the 10 or 20 years before then, or some of them were. So imagine that you're, as the girls said, your grandparents and your parents had been in Babylon, that you were born there. Imagine that was the scene. And you know that early on you've been encouraged to settle down and make a good life for yourself in Babylon because that's what Jeremiah 29 says and and that's what the community had done. They would establish. Imagine you were uh, living in Babylon. You don't know anyone who's been to Palestine or Jerusalem, let alone live there. This is stuff from like two generations ago. Imagine that. Imagine that maybe you've heard a bit about how Jerusalem's been doing. And it's in a terrible state. You know, it looks like it looked a little bit after, you know, the morning after, you know, looked like Portswood after the last night of term when the students have gone home, you know, out in the streets. Sorry, no offence, students. You know what I mean? That's what it was like. And it'd been like that. Nothing had happened there much for a couple of generations. All you've got are stories from the old days. You know God's with you in Babylon. For one thing, Ezekiel, another of the prophets who, who was uh, ministering, bringing God's word at that time, had, had given you as a community early on a, a wonderful vision, you can read it in Ezekiel, of God's powerful throne. And you know the thing about God's throne was it showed up in, 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 the, in Babylon in his vision. And it had wheels so it could kind of move around. So e- even in your thinking, you, you knew that God was going to be with you in, in Babylon. Just put yourself there, okay? You're that kind of Israelite. You see, you were in exile, but you were kind of used to it, weren't you? It wasn't so bad. After all, the seven wonders of the world, one of them was in Babylon. Exile was all we know. 
Sure, there were some big stories about what God could do, what God had done, but they're all about the past. And knowing the stories was enough to keep you going. But now, suddenly, you begin to realize that God has got more for you. The stories are about a God who still works. His word is true. Something is happening and you're going to get with it. You've got a kind of choice to make, haven't you? If you're an Israelite. And you know, I wonder as I pause, can we get like that? I, I know, I've used this in conversation, but somebody once said that for us as a nation, for us in the West, it kind of feels like the spiritual tide is way out, you know? It feels like being on Ride Beach, you know, at low tide, and it almost looks like the, <laughs> the sea is towards the end of the pier. And you know, it's tough to, you know, float the boat when the tide is not in. And spiritually, it kind of perhaps feels like exile. We have stories in our culture of, of, of times when God has worked in our society, where our whole society was turned around because people understood the gospel and responded to it. In the time of Wesley and, and Whitfield and, uh, and Shaftesbury and Wilberforce and these people who you know, did great things for God. But it's like, ooh, it's 100, 200 years ago. Are we a bit like the Israelites, really? We need to realize, you know, like the Israelites had to do, if you're an Israelite, you had to get used to the idea, or wake up to the idea, that being in exile is not meant to be normal. Because back in Ezra, God was moving, and the Israelites respond to that. Let's see how they respond. Verse 5. Read on. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests of Levi and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And there's a list of them and then a total there. Sheshbazar brought all these along when the exiles came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar are probably the same guy with two different names, people think. He was like the, the we'll meet him again in the story, Zerubbabel. He was the the, the kind of political leader, along with Joshua or Jeshua, he was the high priest, we'll meet him as well. Nehemiah, not the same Nehemiah that, we, uh, that wrote the book, another one. Sariah, Realiah, Mordecai, again, not the one in Esther, another one. Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rehem, and Barna. Don't need to worry about them, but we, do, we'll, we will be meeting Zerubbabel and Jeshua later on. First five tells us, that they respond, they prepare to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 2, that's what they do. They come with all they need, all they need for their worship. These vessels that had been in the temple are recovered and given back to them. 
and all that they need for the building. They've, given a, a, they've been given a load of stuff, lots of uh, money to make it possible. Not all of them have gone. It's about 50,000 of them. Most of the Israelites probably remained in Babylon. It was only those who really wanted to do it, wanted to go. We know that because the book of Esther is all about that community that stayed and history tells us that, that, that a lot of them, the majority of them, didn't come back with this bunch here. So here's the question, what was it that enabled these ones to get up out of Babylon, leave all of that behind and go back to their homeland and be, rebuild their temple? Well, I think that they are things that they realize and the text tells us what they are. They leave Babylon after 60 to 70 years. They come to realize four things about God and they get these things in a new way. They get it into them. And you know, if we're to respond to the God who still moves in history, maybe we need to get hold of these four things as well. They're not rocket science, but here they come. The first thing is this. The people had to realize that the Lord owns history. It says, doesn't it, that uh, Cyrus's edict was proclaimed throughout the realm. Imagine, it'd be like hearing the news one morning. You know, I don't know about you, we put you know, Radio 4 on when we wake up, have a cup of tea, hear the news. And how, imagine you were in Babylon and you heard the news that Cyrus was talking about the, the God of heaven, the God in Jerusalem. And he's came up with a rule, a law, that says he wants everyone who, who wants to, to go back and rebuild his temple. Imagine that. That was quite a wake-up call. They see something beginning to happen that they've not been aware of for years. God is doing something. Uh, if you saw a Facebook post, I was looking at a blog about uh, what's called Deus Absanticus. God's away on business, saying Tom Waits. God's not away on business. They wake up to realize God is the Lord who owns history. He is active in the world. That's the first thing that they really grab. Our God is the God of history. He moves, he works, he does things. And he was doing something then. And do we need to grasp that? That the Lord owns history. To believe it and to live our lives on that basis. That we have a heavenly father. Yeah, the... the, the um, the Lord's Prayer tells us, has the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. He is our heavenly Father. He is at work. His kingdom will come on earth. We can pray that. We can live that. That's where prayer starts, with that realization that the Lord, our Lord, owns history and works. And that's why we share our lives with him. We pray. That's the first thing they had to realize maybe we do too. Do you? Do you need to get hold of that? Secondly, they had to realize that the Lord's word does not fail. They realized it again. Some of them would have remembered Jeremiah's prophecy. But there was more than that. There's an interesting word in the king's edict in verse 4 that the king would have just used without realizing it. There's a word there, verse 4, where survivors may now be living. You see that? where survivors may now be leaving. Now, that is a, an interesting word that would have rung a bell to anyone who'd known the, the prophet Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos. It's the word remnant. 
Those left over. And the prophets had said, God had said through the prophets, I'm going to start again with this remnant, those who are left. There's going to be a small number of them and they're going to go back and, and my program is, is not being kind of stopped by your sin and by the exile. Something new is going to happen. And, and they realized that when they, they got that connection that the Lord's word is not going to fail. We need to grasp this too, don't we? God's word does not fail. As we were thinking earlier, as we sing, he stands by his promises. He promises, he delivers. He delivers. He will complete what he started in you, in me. The church, his people, his community will be full of his glory. He will be with us as we go out to make disciples. The exile, whatever exile you may feel that you're in, it is not meant to be permanent. Now, I don't know when it's going to end necessarily. Maybe today. But the point is, God's word does not fail. Thirdly, they have to realize that the Lord's salvation movement is unstoppable. Where do I get that from? Well, if you read the account again and you think of what's happening... And look at the, the language that's used. There are reminders of another Old Testament story. Did you notice those reminders? It's partly in the phrase, look at chapter 2, verse 1. The people of the province who came up from the captivity. Does that remind you of any story in the Old Testament? God's people coming out of captivity. Look at what it says about how the people around them gave them stuff. How actually Cyrus put in part of his edict, I'd like everyone to give these guys some stuff to help them on their way. Does that remind you of anything? Story of Exodus, isn't it? So in, in the events, they're seeing that, that God is, just as God was at work in Exodus, so there's this new Exodus. God is moving. God's program uh, of salvation is ongoing. It's not come to an end. Their, their 70 years of exile is, is, is a mere blip in terms of God's purposes and what God is going to do. His salvation is unstoppable. And you know, from where we are, we need to realize that God's salvation movement will continue until it's completed. And we can respond to this because it will be completed. There will be a day when there will be people from every single uh, cultural, tribal, language group praising Jesus around the throne of heaven. Representatives from every one of them. That's God's program. It will happen. And we can respond to God because it will be completed. The only question is, are we going to be part of it or are we going to be watchers of it? be good to be part of it, wouldn't it? Not just watch it happen from a distance. That's why we send mission partners. Well, just a brief reminder, if you haven't responded to my email or, or the letter, feel free to do that if possible in the next week or two. But that's why we do it. Because God's salvation movement is unstoppable and there will be Kazakhs in heaven. And we can be part of that because we're praying for people and sending people to places where Kazakhs live, to name but one of those groups. And finally, the Lord has a purpose to live among his people. That's the significance of their building project. They're going back to build the temple. That's the thing. 
And the temple is the sign of God's intention to live with them at the heart of their community again. If you look into well, why David wanted the temple built, he, he wasn't able to, but it was in his heart. We were looking at the center service, the midday service this week. Psalm 132 has David's heart for, for a place where God will dwell with his people. That's what the temple was, a place where God kind of lived among them. They knew God wasn't confined, shut up in some kind of building. It was a sign that he was with them as a whole community. His absence is temporary. He wants to live with them again. And you know, we need to realize that God's heart is to live among us as his people. Ephesians 2 verse 19 talks about how it's God's intention that that we as a community, that every community of God's people would become a temple, it says, in which God dwells by his spirit. 1 Peter 2 talks about us being living stones built together into a holy temple in the Lord. God wants to live among and with his people together. That's us. As we were thinking Thursday lunchtime, Revelation 3 verse 20, lovely picture. Jesus is talking to people in a church where he's locked out. He's saying, look, if any one of you are willing to open the door, repent and let me in, I'll come in and I'll, I'll be like so close to you, it'll be like we'll be having a meal together. He wants to be at home with us individually too. Corporately and individually. Do we get that? Because if we do, then it's worth responding If the Lord owns history, if the Lord's word does not fail, if the Lord's salvation movement is unstoppable, if the Lord will live and wants to live among us as his people, then it's worth a long journey, isn't it? It's worth getting out of comfortable Babylon and going wherever he wants us to go. It's worth building. Not not a building as such, although they'll be part of it. It's worth building a community where God dwells by his spirit. These four big truths about God, they get them in a new way. They see the big picture. That's why we call this one the big picture. They see what God is doing and they see how they can be part of it. And so can we. And they got it in a new way, finally. Because what does it say in verse 5? There's a description of the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, the priests and the Levites, but were they just priests, Levites, family heads? Everyone whose heart God had moved. It's not just truths about a God who acts on the big stage. He's in relationship to us. He works through us. Our hearts are meant to respond to him. He strengthens us. He moves us. He empowers us by his spirit. The living God who moves Cyprus, Cyrus, moves in our hearts. Is your heart healthy? Some of us, as we get older, need heart checks. I think I might need one, but anyway, that's another thing. Maybe you should get a spiritual heart check. Has God stirred your heart? Are you willing for him to do that? Are we just too used to exile? Perhaps we should come and ask him to lead you back home again. Do we realize who our father is, the Lord of history, whose word doesn't fail, 
whose salvation movement is unstoppable and who longs to live among his people. That that is all meant to be normal, not exceptional. So let's give him our hearts. Let's ask him to stir our hearts. And as he does, let's get ready to leave exile. That we may be built into a living temple where God lives by his spirit. Let's go on that journey together, shall we? And find him there as we go.